Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's interview is with Jay Couture, the Executive Director and CEO of the Seacoast Mental Health Center, a nonprofit community mental health center in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Jay received her master's degree from the Department of Health Management and Policy here at UNH. Jay knew early on that she wanted to work in mental health, but thought she would be a provider. This is the abridged version of my interview with Jay. In the abridged version, you will hear Jay describe Seacoast's service structure and the challenges of delivering mental health care. The podcast is approximately 40 minutes in length. The full-length version of the podcast explores the career path Jay took to becoming the CEO of Seacoast, as well as more detail about Seacoast and mental health service delivery, as well as Jay's thoughts on leadership. The full-length podcast is approximately 79 minutes. So welcome to The Forge, Jay. Thank you. So Seacoast Mental Health Center is a community mental health center. What does that mean? Is there is there a special meaning to that? There is. So uh, we are one of 10 state-designated community mental health centers, which means that we have gone through an approval process to be the provider in a geographic area, um, and like I mentioned for us, it's the eastern half of Rockingham County, to provide services to um, residents who meet a state level both diagnostically and in terms of functional impairment. So that there are services that many of our population require that you can't get at a private practice office. We tend to see the cases, the complex cases that a private practitioner does not tend to keep in their practice. So people who need a lot of community-based support, so they're, they're served in a team modality, so they may have a psychiatrist, a nurse, a therapist, and then community-based staff who can help them with case management needs, so making sure that they have access to health benefits and housing and heating assistance, all the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay. so that if their basic needs are met, then perhaps they're better able to be treatment ready. And that, I think, is it's different than in other practices where most of the services would be office-based. So you, do you actually employ here case managers and, and people who would do some of these other community-based services? We do. We have, we call them outreach specialists, but they are case managers. They are people who provide a service called functional support services that helps people manage their symptoms in the community so that they can be successful in the community. Okay. We have employment specialists who provide services to help people either enter or re-enter the workforce. Are these people typically clinicians or are they social workers? So we have a mix. We have we have physicians, we have nurse practitioners, we have psychologists, we have both licensed and yet to be licensed master's level staff. We have bachelor's level staff, so bachelors of social work, bachelors of psychology, sociology, you could have someone who's working in some of our positions that would be from health management and policy. Okay. So I was thinking of the community-based folks. Because you're, so of course you have 
providers, but you also had, you were referring to people like who would assist with uh, housing or things like that. So, so those would... tend to be bachelor's level staff who have okay. psychology, sociology, those okay. kind of backgrounds per state rule. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's a pretty diverse mix yeah. from a credential perspective. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that makes us different than other mental health private practices in the area. That's interesting. So, I, I, so a, a private practice would not have the full scope, right? They would address maybe the disease specifically. Right. Rather than being able to uh, have the I mean, it's really just, of, right, an ability to have that breadth of scope in, in uh, providers. We as a designated community mental health center are mandated to do a lot of things that no private provider, particularly for-profit, would choose to do because it's often not compensated. <laughs> now, now, okay, so does the state then provide you specific compensation for these other services in addition not to Not all of them, no. Sometimes, and in some cases, we do get some, currently get some funds to support emergency services for people who have no insurance, less than we used to. But there are a number of things. If we have somebody who is mandated to have services, so you could have someone who is involuntarily admitted to the hospital to protect either themselves or others, and they get what's called a conditional discharge, which is a legal status, they have to receive treatment in order to stay out of the hospital, and we have to provide the treatment even if we don't get paid in order for them to because stay of out of the hospital. Because of a, our status. As a community yes. mental health center. Right. Okay. So... That's part of the reason why we do things. And, and I think also having, we have about 160, 165 staff. So we have always somebody who's on duty. And even within um, the treatment teams, there's a lot of support. So people don't have to be alone with a case. If there's a really complex case, they can consult with each other, either with peers of their same credential level, or physicians often consult with the outreach staff about what they're seeing when they're out in the consumer's home to try to help and enlighten the treatment. So you, you talked about some of the, you, you kind of mentioned some of the providers that, that you employ. So maybe we could talk about that for a second. You said you have everything from physicians, so psychiatrists, I'm assuming. Yes. Do you have non-mental non health physicians as well, or is that a We do not okay. yet. But some, you know, it, as we look at the increasing practice of integrated care, that certainly would be something that we would seek probably in the next three to five years to explore. What we've been doing is we're integrating staff into primary care. Okay. But it would be, I think, a, a positive thing for some of our consumers who are more comfortable coming here if we can then integrate in so, the So you're, saying you're well. integrating some of your staff into primary care offices Correct. elsewhere? Yes. Okay. So. so we have therapists who are co-located at each of the community health centers in our region, so that's Families First and Lamprey Health. We also have children's therapists at core physicians in the pediatric practice in Epping, and we, are, we have a nurse practitioner who is two days a week at Families First. That's relatively new. She just joined us this summer and are recruiting for a nurse practitioner to be two days a week at Crossroads House, the homeless shelter. Okay. And you said nurse practitioner, so is that a, a, a nurse practitioner with a special specialization in mental health? Yes. Interesting, okay. I'm familiar with nurse practitioners doing kind of primary care work. I, mm -hmm. I didn't realize that they were able to do or have specializations in mental health. Yes, they do, which is, I think, very helpful in terms of the staffing shortages 
there are not enough psychiatrists to meet the need nationwide. Okay. Um, and as a community mental health center, we often pay less okay. than, say, a hospital would or a private practice could generate. So that augments the number of prescribers that we can have on staff. Um, so you're bringing up an important point that I think maybe a, a lot of people outside the mental health field don't really realize is, what are the differences between the licenses for providers? So for example, psychiatrist versus psychologist versus nurse practitioner, licensed social work. Or maybe you could talk to kind of those So a psychiatrist levels. or a nurse practitioner can prescribe, okay. but in a community mental health environment, and I say that because it's different than in other environments, only a psychiatrist can sign a treatment plan. Okay. What does that mean? That means that there's a formulation of what services a particular client would benefit from, and it gets laid out with goals and objectives in a very structured format. It has to be reviewed at least every 90 days by the psychiatrist. We're working really hard to change that because we think that it doesn't make sense for it to be limited only to a psychiatrist. What I tend to tell the, our delegation, because I talk to them all the time, it's a CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services rule, is that a nurse practitioner can prescribe medication that could kill someone, you hope it won't, <laughs> but they cannot sign a treatment plan that authorizes someone to get talk therapy. And that does, to me okay. doesn't make sense and it's not a good use of resources. So we're taking our most expensive, most limited resource and using it in an ineffective way. Meaning the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist. So what's the difference, very quickly, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? A psychiatrist is a medical doctor. Okay, so they get So they that. are a physician who then does their um, specialty training, their residency in psychiatry. Okay. And some of them go on for additional training and specialty in either child psychiatry or geriatrics, so different areas of specialty. A psychologist is not a physician, but a doctoral level. They can be in psychology and education, so you have PhDs and PsyDs and EDDs, <laughs> lots of different credentials, but they can do, they do therapy, but they also can do testing, which can be a really valuable tool in helping if there's some question or concern about a diagnosis for a client that some of the testing that's available can help to resolve questions in that area. And, and what, what do you mean by testing? Are we talking so different psychological testing, so um, Myers-Briggs testing, uh, there's, we have a relatively new psychologist who has joined us who has a specialty in testing kids to see where they are on the autism spectrum. Okay. So there are a number of different tools that can be used to help identify. So, but a psych psychological test is typically not, you're not going to draw blood necessarily. You are not right? going to draw so blood. What we're talking you're about gonna, is an interview kind an of An interview, thing, or a paper, test. Um, paper uh, a lot of it is computerized okay. at this point, sure. yes. I'm sure so, my age by saying paper, but right. <laughs> We're not that many years removed from paper, and, and even when you're electronic, you still have paper. Sure, okay. Uh, Right, the drawing of blood, our nurses do some injections. We have nurses on staff as well, okay. but the psychologists do not. Okay, so, so we have psychiatrists who are physicians who then go on to do a, a residency in psychiatry. We have, you have psychologists who are four-year trained PhD types, mm -hmm. or, or there's a few others that are EDD or other yep. related fields. You have, we've talked about nurse practitioners that have a uh, specialty in, in mental health. What else? So we have what nurses. We have three nurses on staff who help clients with 
getting their med boxes, their med planners for the week ready, do injections and support some of the other services in the psychiatry department. We have many different credential types for master's level therapists. So you have licensed clinical social workers, people who have who got their uh, master's in social work and then went on to get to take the exam and do the interview to be uh, able to practice independently. We have um, marriage and family therapists. We have um, people who are who have an, a master's in arts or a master's in science that could be in counseling or psychology and then went on. Most of those staff then take a community mental health licensed clinical mental health exam, different or different variations of the acronym. Uh, so that they can practice independently, although more limited. The, the one with the broadest acceptance by insurance for independence is the MSW, a licensed okay. independent clinical social worker can bill Medicare, whereas okay. none of the others can do that independently. We hire a lot of master's level staff and bachelors right out of school because they can't practice independently, but they can work here under the umbrella and the supervision of so many other staff that it provides an opportunity for them to get a great postgraduate education. And what kind of work would they be doing? So, so, they so, they, so like for example, the social workers, some of the other master's level providers that you talked about, they're doing talk so therapy. So they can still do therapy oh. services, but they do it with, and a supervisor signs off on it. They don't have to be present in the room, okay. but they're um, getting a level of supervision that's commensurate with their experience level okay. to make this sure is the bachelor's that level people. Uh, the master's level oh, when, master's as well. when a master's level therapist graduates they're not yet prepared to practice independently and so okay. the general um, requirement for the board of registration is that they have two years of supervised services and those have to be documented and they have to have a single generally a single although they're staff turnover does allow for different supervisors to come in, but there's a continuity of supervision that's afforded to them, uh, specifically around preparing them for licensure. And that generally takes about two years for them to be ready uh, to, to sit for the exam and have, okay. the, have enough clinical hours. So you graduate from a, say, a master's in social work program, mm -hmm. and then you come, you're not yet licensed, or is that a different? Right, you are not yet licensed. You're not licensed, you're not eligible to be licensed for about two years. Okay. You need to get a thousand clinical hours, uh, a thousand hours of supervision, I think, is the level. Wow, okay. And then you, so, so you have master's level staff who are helping with therapies and so forth. You said you have bachelor's level staff. What kind of work would they do? So the bachelor's level staff are going to do, uh, provide a service called functional support services, uh, which they're not therapy, but they're therapeutic. So they're going to help people manage their symptoms when they're out in the community. They're going to help them uh, with questions about following instructions for their medications. Uh, we have some people who need to have reinforcement. So we actually have people who will go for some of our clients out to see them sometimes twice a day to make sure that they took their medications. They're gonna help them, as I mentioned earlier, with access to, to the benefits that they're eligible for, whether that's Medicaid or Medicare, housing benefits, heat assistance. We're working now with some of our families for that need help with getting clothes for their kids for school. So it's a pretty broad range. So they do functional support services and then those other services that help with daily living and housing and things are case management services. Okay. And the bachelor's level staff tend to be the primary providers of that. Some of our master's level staff will do that if it makes sense for the family to have a single provider. Okay. And 
So you're trying to extend basically using less costly you want uh, to uh, you want to use providers. each credential to the maximum level of their scope of service that they're allowed to do. So the if if a bachelor's level staff person can do it, that's generally the preference from a, a cost perspective, and that tends to make more sense because they can then be out, they are out in the community, they're actually, we have staff who are co-located throughout the community in our children's department. We're in many of the schools in our area as well as in the primary care practices that I mentioned earlier. I think that for us, we try to make sure that services are available where it makes the most sense for the consumer and their family. Okay. Talking about the the, uh, the services broadly that you that you offer, I saw you, you offer a, adult services. What would that consist of broadly? So for it depends on the um, diagnosis and functional impairment. You could have someone who is seen by our emergency services because they're in crisis. They may have one visit. They may have um, up to five visits in an emergency situation. Uh, we have then different eligibility statuses for people. So depending on where they are slotted clinically, you have people who don't meet the state eligibility, but they still need services, that they have symptoms that are interfering with their daily lives. So they may have sessions for six months to a year and work on, they've got, it could be an anxiety or an adjustment disorder. We've worked with grief counseling for uh, elders who've lost spouse. Um, we have a prevention program for elders as well, so people who don't necessarily need to enter treatment but need some additional supports in helping them to manage some of the changes related to aging. Then you have people who meet the criteria, who are adults who are designated as being severely mentally ill or severely and persistently mentally ill. And as you move up in those clinical designations, they get a broader scope of services. So those are the people who are likely seeing a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner. So we tend now to refer to them generically as seeing a prescriber. Okay, yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> uh, they've uh, likely got a therapist assigned and a case manager assigned. We also have a team for adults that specializes in the most ill. It's called an assertive community treatment team. They, uh, we have staff on seven days a week and they are on from eight in the morning until eight at night uh, throughout those seven days so that they can really provide the most supports. These are people who tend to have frequent hospitalizations or interactions with law enforcement if they're not being supported in a way that helps them to do other so this is a real, I mean, this is a, if you can maintain that level of care, you can prevent uh, hospitalization, which would be much more costly than, right. than, than getting outpatient treatment, or you could prevent a potential law enforcement issue, right. which again is less more. costly in kind of a social way. Correct. Uh, so we partner with Portsmouth District Court and in Hampton and Exeter we have mental health courts. So people who are involved with, uh, with the justice system, but it's really clear that it's related to their mental illness, we can work with, through the courts to have them diverted into treatment rather than incarceration. Uh, how, how does that flow work? So, so someone gets picked up somewhere in, in Portsmouth. How do they then identify this person should go to uh, I think court? It took us a number of years in just planning and working together to figure out how we would do that. So we have a case manager if they think at the court that someone might be eligible or that they already know that they're connected to us. We have a okay. case manager who'll go and do an assessment and it, it's voluntary. So 
clients can certainly choose not to participate in it. They can uh, choose not to be routed into the mental, mental health, health system. They sure can, okay. which is an important piece as far as their civil liberties. Uh, but if they do choose to be part of it, then there's a very supportive structure so that there are regular meetings that happen between the treatment team and the court, and the clients go to court on a fairly regular basis just to check in. And here in Portsmouth, Judge Gardner has been wonderful. Um, about that. So there's one judge in Portsmouth who is uh, the primary person who does this. We also do the clinical services for the Rockingham County Drug Court. Um, okay. So that's a post-conviction treatment. They're out on parole while they're doing that and Judge Wagling. So it's similar. Um, the sanctions are a little stiffer on that side but it's at okay. the Superior Court level. Yeah. But it also it offers people an alternative to get treatment for either their mental health issues or their addiction issues, rather than be incarcerated. And that's a much more effective and productive use of the state's resources and the local resources. That sounds very reasonable. You have a, a service called Child Impact. What is, what is that? We do in the state of New Hampshire, if you have children under the age of 18, you cannot get divorced or revise a child um, custody agreement without having taken this course at one of the 10 mental health centers. So this really is an educational seminar that helps spouses at a really difficult time um, understand the impact of their behaviors or potential behaviors on their children and tries to provide them with some resources and tools to be more mindful of okay. how the dissolution of an adult relationship can impact the children in their lives. Okay, so it's a, it's a course that you It's offer. a course. Okay, and then you, you offer child, adolescent, and family services. So we have a really broad scope of services, uh, and like I said, we are in most of the schools in our region. Um, we're in one pediatrician's office, soon to be another one, I hope. Now are these private pediatricians, or are these also, you mentioned So community? one is owned by CORE Physicians, which is Exeter okay, right. Hospital, right. and then the, the two others are the community health centers for our area, and the third one is a private. And are, you tre are, are the people you have placed in those uh, facilities, and I'm thinking certainly with the, the community clinics, those are already probably have, a, the patients probably already have an overlap in terms of their eligibility. So core, is a, core is a part of a, of a system that is, it's nonprofit, but it's, but it's kind of a standard private practice. We actually, it, for the co-located positions that we have, for the most part, other than the nurse practitioner who's just started at, at Families First, they are master's level therapists and mostly in our, from our Child and Family Services Department. So it'll, it provides a, an access point for people that the pediatricians or primary care providers think could benefit from therapy but wouldn't come here. Okay. Um, so it, it makes it more convenient and more likely that they will follow through with care. For Exeter Hospital, and, and in the broader sense, we contract with them to provide all of their psychiatric services at the hospital. So oh, our okay. physicians do consultations on their inpatient units, and our uh, emergency services clinicians provide all of the mental health assessments in their emergency room. And in the last several years, because of the wait list for inpatient beds, for psychiatric inpatient beds in our state, the doctors will also do consults for people who are held for more than 24 hours in the emergency room if the emergency room doc requests now, it. That brings up a, a point I wanted to raise. You do not have inpatient capability here. 
No, we have one group home in Greenland that has eight beds that provides housing for people who are not currently able to live independently. And we have three condominiums in Portsmouth that provide housing to six clients, but we have no inpatient capacity. Okay, but these are those people would have to be stable and right. To when I think of a inpatient admission, I'm thinking of somebody who is probably in particular distress. Right. So you don't have that capability. We do to not. Offer. So you rely on the on the local hospitals to provide that. Right. So for a voluntary admission, uh, Portsmouth Hospital has a behavioral health unit. Frisbee Hospital has a geropsychiatric unit. We refer to Anna Jakes in Massachusetts, Elliott Hospital. Elliott Hospital also has involuntary beds, but only eight. Portsmouth Hospital has just opened involuntary beds. These are for admissions where people are not choosing to go, but it's been determined and it becomes a legal status that we have a right to involuntarily admit them. And the only other place that is available in this region for, for those types of beds is New Hampshire Hospital in Concord. And for the past several years, there's been a wait list every day, every single day. So that's a challenge that you have. That's an incredible Trying to find a place to put somebody. Right. And if they need to be in an involuntary bed, you can't just say, oh, there's this other bed here because they're too ill to okay. be in a general population bed and they need the level of care that would be provided for them at a, at a designated receiving facility. That's probably one of the greatest sadnesses for me about our system that uh, we have families who literally suffer because their loved ones are stuck in an emergency room for days at a time. So, so if there is no involuntary bed available, someone winds up... Waiting in the emergency room because emergency. they're not safe to go home, so right. you can't release them. Um, sometimes, if they're there long enough and they get some level of treatment, the psychiatrist is rounding, you can stabilize someone and, and maybe they do ultimately go home instead of going to the hospital, but for many of them, most of them, they're waiting there for, could be a day. We, there, there are stories throughout the state where sometimes it's many, many days. Yeah, mm -hmm. and based on my experience in emergency rooms, it's not a peaceful, kind of stable place. It to is not the place that, to right. collect yourself if you're, and, if you're under stress. And it impacts other people who are there for completely different reasons, because if the resources are diverted to managing someone who's having a psychotic episode, then that means maybe you are not getting your needs met while you're waiting there for a different reason. What's the main difference between adult services and child services? I mean, other than the fact that it's age, what, what's, so what's the, different? The ages are different, and it's easier to be designated as eligible for community mental health services for kids. The kids age out of the system unless they have one of the more limited and more severe uh, diagnoses and would transfer to, to adult services. There are certain diagnoses that are covered in children's services, ADHD and spectrum disorder services that are not covered in the adult mental health system. Okay. So I think those are probably the largest differences or the kind of diagnoses and the That's kind right. of interventions that you would then use. There are some things that that are employed across all age ranges for different therapeutic services, but we have a team here, for example, that specializes in treating kids on the spectrum. So those staff have particular training in the picture exchange communication system for kids who have don't have verbal skills okay. and applied behavioral analysis to help both the clients and, more importantly, their families learn how to help manage behaviors. Okay. 
You have a program called CLAD, C-L-A-D. The Center for Learning and Attention Disorders. So those are um, psychologists. Uh, It was a private practice that we took over in 1994, so just a few years ago. And they are actually nationally known. So it's Dick Ware, Peg Dawson um, are the primary staff in that department who are national experts both in ADHD, in spectrum disorders and really are able to provide a level of consultation to schools and to families and to our own staff that I don't think any other mental health center has in the state at that level. We actually work with some of the other mental health centers. We were very fortunate to be able to bring them on board and I think it's a it's a wonderful resource and support for our staff. One other program you have is is REAP, R-E-A-P? So that's the um, Referral Education Assistance and Prevention Program for Elders. So this is a population that has many life changes that are happening. They also tend to be a population that doesn't like to ask for help and might see it as threatening to come into the mental health system. I mean, anyone can see it as threatening to come into the mental health system. Uh, So this is a program that started out of the New Hampshire Housing Authority and was limited just to those properties that were owned and managed by the New Hampshire Housing. And now it, it has expanded over time to be statewide and apply to elders and caregivers for elders to really provide supports and education. So they might do some education around why it's important to make sure your meds aren't accessible to your grandchildren or cautions about falls or cautions about mixing your different medications with your evening cocktail. Because there are just culturally things that have changed from when this population was in their young and middle age and we used to have cocktail hours. (laughs) I don't remember my parents doing that. Um, Some of us might still, but uh, just really trying to provide education. And it then becomes a nice segue if it is appropriate for additional services that they've established a relationship, there's some trust, and it makes it easier to connect them with other things that can be helpful to them. I see. So let's talk a little more about your kind of your career here at Seacoast. You came here as the associate director in, in 1993. What were your responsibilities as the associate director? A lot. (laughs) If it wasn't clinical, it fell under my purview. So I was responsible for developing the budget, for supervising all of the non-clinical staff, so front desk staff, transcription staff, medical records staff, the facilities staff. So at that time, we only had one IT person. Well, in in 93, there weren't that many computers probably either. That's right. That's right. (laughs) I remember my first clinic about that time. So if it wasn't clinical, it was mine. Okay. How many folks was that about? Probably at that time, it was probably 25 people. That's pretty significant. Um, So so given you were coming from Stratford. It was a big leap. Yeah. So you had been in charge of the billing and primary. Right. This is a big jump. I did not. I was not responsible for crafting an entire agency budget. Yeah. yeah, but I remember at the beginning I said it's important to do things that are a stretch. This was, it was definitely a stretch. And I learned a lot quickly. Yeah. Uh, how did you come to, 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 to get that job? I mean, like, like you said, it was a stretch. So somebody had some faith in you that you could do that. So I actually did not apply for that position. I was contacted by a third party. Okay. Um, this was back... So this will date me. 
before, well, before email and before, I had to go to a stationery store. I got a phone call and I had to go to a stationery store in downtown Dover to get a fax of the job description. <laughs> so look at it. Uh-huh. Uh, because the only fax machine at my former employer was in the executive director's office. <laughs> oh, and he probably didn't want to get a fax right, from a, yeah, right. from a potential um, so, employer. <laughs> so there had been someone at the state who I guess was aware and thought that I might be someone who had potential and that's how it started. I okay. So I think that, you know, networking when you can and, and making sure that people are aware of your skill levels or potential skill levels because certainly it what like I said it wasn't something that I had applied for I had at the time that this happened my grandmother had was in the hospital and then ultimately passed and so there were other things that I wouldn't have even thought about considering leaving and I was not unhappy in my other role but I I did I made the leap Okay, so so you made it's a it's a big jump that you made at that time. You you oversaw fiscal and administrative functions. Um, you were coordinating with the with the state uh, uh, for your contract. I was yes, um, oh. and so at in, at that time, the some of the people that I'd worked with in my former role, I still had contact with. So there wasn't like it wasn't like transferring to a whole new universe. Some of the people were still okay. the same, okay. and that made it easier. I was still in a statewide group of the same peers. I was filling that role for um, my, not all the time, but at least part of the time in my prior center going to a statewide meeting of CFOs. So that helped even though I didn't have that role there. When I came to this center, I still had that group of peers that I could network with and say, how do you do this? (laughs) (laughs) And what does your center do when this happens? I also have, I like policy, I like Medicaid and administrative rules. It's not something a lot of people like, but I yeah. think that I learned to become the, a very proficient in understanding those, and that certainly helped me in my work. Okay. Toward the end of your period as the associate director, that's when you went back and got your master's in healthcare administration from health management and policy, my department, I uh, UNH. Did. What made you decide to, that that was the time to do it, that you wanted to do an MHA rather than something else? I had a wonderful mentor here, uh, okay. the executive director, my predecessor, Jeff Connor. He really encouraged me to do it. You can't be a CEO in the mental health system in the state of New Hampshire without at least having a master's degree. Oh, okay. So that was an incentive to do that. and. And the MHA really was more attractive to me. I looked at the executive MBA program as well, but knowing that I wasn't looking to change fields, I was looking to stay where I was when you look at the course work that was required, that having it be something that really was going to be focused on healthcare, the MBA didn't have the healthcare focus track at that time, um, it was a really good fit. Okay. Um, and what I, did you gain from going through the program? Because your undergrad was, in a, in a very different field. You had a lot of practical experience at, by that mm-hmm. point. I think that in some ways it was validating for the practical experience. And I also remember thinking going back to school as someone who has work experience, I think you get a lot more out of the coursework. That said, I told my kids, just keep going. <laughs> because it's hard to balance sure, work and sure. life too. I continued yeah. to work full time and had a family at that point. But I'm still connected to 
one of my professors from that program. We interact, right, actually more than one because I am uh, sit on an advisory council too, and to some of my classmates that we still consult with each other and stay connected. That I think it really helps you to, to broaden your vision and use a new set of skills in your current work environment. Um, at the same time, I was also asked, he thought it would also, my mentor thought it would also be really helpful for me to uh, run the children's department, so I got some more clinical exposure. I was not relieved of the other duties, and I was in graduate school. I'm not quite sure how that <laughs> happened, but it did, and, and ultimately I think it was really helpful for me, it, because when I took this role, it helped, even though I wasn't a clinician, it helped give me more credibility with the clinical staff that I had sort of lived that life for two years. So when you say you ran it, you were doing the administrative right. operations. For the department and overseeing, supervising all of the um, clinical staff, not doing their clinical supervision Sup- because I'm not credentialed to do that, but um, okay. really being more... But you were their boss. I was their you, boss. You could tell them what to do within outside of the clinical... Correct. Clinical treatment. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was really helpful for me. I think that one of the things that you learn is that no matter how long you've been at an organization, when you sit in a different chair, it's really a different perspective. And I have found that in all of my changes throughout between Stratford Guidance Center, which was the same kind of industry, to where I am now, that you learn a lot and uh, that you have to be ready that it's not going to be what you expect because the perspective is different depending on what seat you're in. Okay. So you you were the associate director through 2002. So for about nine years, you, you served in that role. Mm-hmm. And then you were wrapping up your MHA, I guess, and, and that's when you were offered the opportunity to take on the... So I graduated in May, and then we had September 11th. So my predecessor then, after September 11th, decided he was ready to move on okay. to something. And then um, ultimately I was selected. So I graduated in May and I, in the April of the following year. Wow. I, uh, so graduate May, you were then qualified to be because you needed your master's degree. And, and here I am. Wow. And again, that was, I think, a leap for the board. I report directly to a volunteer board of directors that I didn't have a experience as a CEO. I wasn't a clinician, which my predecessor um, was. Oh. And, and yet they took a risk. And here I still am. And here you are. So obviously it's worked out okay. How did your role as the associate director prepare you for that, for that jump? Well, I think I knew a lot about the center operationally. So in the role of associate director, you're very internally focused on what's happening within the organization. So I was very well versed in how we operated and the things that we did. I think I had a pretty good sense of our strengths and weaknesses as an organization. And I think that helped me to be ready. Okay. But it doesn't make you 100% ready because again, it's really different. The as the CEO, you have much more, not that you're not responsible for the internal, but you have much more of an external role as well. Okay. Um, what does that mean? Integrating into the community, partnering with other stakeholders and other providers. Um, that was certainly an area that I think was ripe for growth for us, and, and we tried to do that. Being more um, visible at the state level. The community mental health centers for many, many years didn't have to advocate for themselves at the legislature because past commissioners had seen their role as advocating for the population that they were responsible for. 
and that relieved the centers, in a sense, at that time from having to go and testify at hearings and really do a lot of advocacy work. But that shifted as economics shifted and different commissioners came into the role. And um, right about the time that I was taking over, we really had to learn how to advocate and how to try to work with the legislature directly in a way that we hadn't before. And so that was a big change. So what would you say are, are the primary kind of responsibilities of the CEO, executive director? I mean, ultimately, I think that you are responsible for assuring that your organization is sustainable in a way that allows it to meet its mission. So you need to be able to assure that you can provide the resources so that the staff who are actually doing the direct work have what they need to be successful in helping people reach their recovery goals. Okay. So you said a minute ago that depending on where you sit in the organization, you have a very different view. What surprised you most when you took on the CEO role and you took on, you know, got I, your new seat? What I think um, the first thing is that sense that when you're not the CEO, you always have someone that you can kick it up to, and suddenly everybody's looking at you like you're supposed to come with ready-made answers and know this. And you, you want to, you want to be perceived as a level of someone that has confidence. And so, balancing that out as you're learning, so that staff can still function and do what they and get their needs met. I think that was. Uh, it takes, and it takes a while. I have told others who have ascended into this role internally from their own centers or moved from one center to another, probably two years before it's really your own. You come in and you're inheriting someone else's board, someone else's culture, even if you were part of it, someone else's management style, so people were used to, and my predecessor had been in the role for 20 years when he left. And so you need to take the time to help shift some things stay the same, the core mission is the same, but there are nuances and practices that are different and it takes a while for culture doesn't change overnight. So one of the th points that you, you made earlier was your, your predecessor was a provider and you are not. Uh, how has that affected, I mean, you had, a, you, at least prior to coming uh, uh, to moving up as a CEO, you did have some experience as a, an administrative person overseeing providers. Is that attention? I mean, do you, is there attention there that you're not a provider? How do you deal with that? I think um, possibly initially for the mm -hmm. when I first took the role, there might have been some people who questioned that, but I don't think that's an issue now. Uh, okay. We we operate so in a structure that does not have a chief operating officer. Some mental health centers have that between the CEO and the program directors. I choose not to. I have learned over the years from them. They've learned from me and I think that it, we have a great collaborative relationship and great respect for the skills that we each bring to the table. I am the CEO, but it does not in an authoritative and hierarchical way. I think it's important right. to recognize that you look better as a CEO and your organization is stronger if you surround yourself with really skilled, intelligent um, people. I want everyone who works for me to be smarter than I am because I think that ultimately serves the organization better. And my role is to really, again, help to create and foster an environment where they can be successful in their roles. Okay. If you could go back to 2002, uh, knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself 
uh, as, as she was about to sit in the chair for the first time? Um, this is going to be really hard work. <laughs> People won't always like the decisions that you make, but it's going to be really gratifying. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.